On September 12, 1995, McKay Everett disappeared from his home in Conroe, Texas. There was no sign of forced entry. It was just as if McKay had walked out of his own free will. And to this day, McKay's mother, Paulette, feels that justice was never truly served. Ransom is available now. Listen at ransompodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV and Resonate Recordings. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence and graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So every year they do a balloon send-off to Brittany, the family does. And I keep one of the ribbons from one of the first balloon drops in my wallet to tie on the handcuffs that will eventually put on the person that did this. Because I want Brittany to be there. She deserves to be alive today. She should be here. This was a completely innocent woman that was traveling on a roadway here in Brown County and somebody ended her life and that of her child that she was pregnant with and injured her other child. One of the most horrendous crimes I've ever heard of in my entire life. And that's why I do these podcasts, do these interviews. I want people to be passionate about this. You know, somebody out there knows exactly what happened. I want this to reach them. I want them to feel bad. I want them to to be hurt. I want it to weigh on them. I don't want them to ever be able to forget that this happened. How often do you come out here? Oh, a couple times a month. Yeah. You notice it's got the heart and wings on it, don't you? <clears throat> I see the heart and wing. Looks nice, too. And the headstone, we waited, I don't know, I don't know how long, year and a half, two years, to put the headstone on her grave because I wanted to see where this investigation went. Brittany Ann Dodson, May 4th, 1991 to August 28, 2013. When you look at Brittany's headstone, her name and the date stand out immediately, as they should. That's sort of the standard with headstones. But surprisingly, that large font etched into the black granite stone isn't really what got my attention per se. What got my attention was what was below it. Once Dave pulled some of the weeds growing at the base and dusted off the stone, it was easier to see. A color image of a young Brittany glowing over the dark backdrop. It's one of her high school graduation photos. And etched just to the right of her is the word baby with an illustration to match. It's a lot to take in. I don't believe grave sites were intended to be that comfortable for people like us, the living. But still, there's something very uncomfortable about this. Looking at the dates on the surrounding headstones, I think back to something Brittany's brother, Tanner, said. He said losing a grandparent is hard. 
but it's expected. Losing a sister, a 22-year-old one at that, is not expected. Neither is losing an unborn child. Everything about it feels wrong. I don't know how else to put it. I look over and see Dave standing by a neighboring headstone a few yards removed from me. He tells me he bought eight lots in total at Mount Zion Cemetery. Sadly, a lot of those are now occupied. But I suppose if there's one good takeaway, it's that Brittany's with family. She's not alone out here. Brittany will be there, and I'll be there, and then Mary, and then Emily, and Mom and Dad's there. My brother's right there, which I haven't bought a stone for him yet. And then we got six more lots down there where Tracy's buried. Dave pauses at his dad's grave for a moment. Etched in his headstone are a deer and a squirrel. When I ask Dave the significance, he tells me, Dad loved deer and Dad raised squirrels. We both laugh. He could tell I was expecting something a little more profound. Also on his dad's stone is what appears to be a nickname, the word Flash. Where'd Flash come from? Well, there was five or six guys all up in their 70s decided to buy this... He tells me a story about how his dad and a group of friends bought a 30-year-old motorhome and took it to Canada to go fishing. As you'd expect, it broke down before they made it there. And they thought the fuel pump had went out of it, so they slid that engine cover off, and one of them was trying to pour gas down the carburetor to get it across the bridge. Well, it backfired, and he took the can of gas Dad was driving and threw it on Dad, which set him on fire. Oh, my gosh. So that's how he wound up with the nickname of Flash. That is not what I was expecting, Dave. That's I how thought he... for sure he was just going to be like a star running back or something, you know? Nope. That's how he wound up with the nickname <laughs> of Flash. Oh, my gosh. As we walk around, stopping for a moment at each of the headstones, Dave tells me stories about the other family members who rest here. Eventually, we make our way back over to Brittany's grave. Dave bends down and meticulously pulls the last of the weeds poking out from the ground and quickly straightens the flowers resting on the base of the headstone. As he takes a step back and gazes at the stone, he tells me that losing Brittany was already hard enough, but what he didn't expect was how difficult everything else has been since losing her. The aftermath, you could call it. He says that even laying Brittany to rest was a process. Well, more specifically, it was an argument between Dave and Shane over where she'd be buried and how it would be paid for. Dave says he never actually had any concern over these things. He was going to take care of it all himself. But when he caught wind that Shane had filed a claim for compensation as a victim of a crime, he decided to let things play out a little to see what Shane intended to do with the money. When I found out Shane got paid and I called him and said, hey, you know, this money's owed. He said, I didn't sign for it, it ain't my problem, and hung up. So I sit there, and the more I sit there, I got madder about it, madder. And I call right up to victims of violent crimes, and I say, I want to know what this money goes for. Let's pay for funeral, hospital bills. I said, well, there was no hospital bills. Brittany died on site. I said, Aubrey had a medical card, so there was no bills there. And the funeral, I'm stuck with the bill. And, well, we're going to look into this. And they, they waited a little while to pay him. And then finally they paid him. I went down to Nuri's that day and I said, I want to be, you know, I want to settle up on this. I owe, owe this money. And she made a couple calls and the next thing you know, she said, well, victim of violent crimes is going to go ahead and cut us a check for half of it. Even though they've already paid out on that claim. And they did. 
Dave reiterates that the money didn't really matter to him. He was prepared to take on any and every cost if need be. What bothered him was Shane's attitude. Not just with the funeral costs, with a lot of things. Things that still eat at Dave and Mary to this day. I'll put it this way. There's no love lost between the Dodsons and Shane. Did you notice anything funny about the headstone? Dodson? No, I put stikes on it. He did. I had overlooked it. Etched at the very bottom of the stone, and about the smallest font you can imagine, Stikes, Brittany's married name. I don't really know how to best describe the relationship between them. Now it's amicable, I guess. It has to be, for the sake of Aubrey. But it wasn't always that way. The aftermath of Brittany's death was shrouded in anger and frustration, amongst other things, and that goes for all parties. But for Dave and Mary, they say it started almost immediately, in preparation of the funeral. When I went to her house to get the clothes for her funeral, for what she was going to wear, her clothes were bagged up. Things were not right. Mm -hmm. So I confronted my other daughter, and I said, Emily, what's going on here? Why was Brittany's clothes in the cupboard bagged up? What's going on? That's when Emily told us, Mom, she was going to leave him, and she was waiting for the right time. This was the first they'd heard about this, and obviously, they weren't happy about it. In a way, it would set things up for what would become a very bumpy road, making arrangements for Brittany's funeral and burial. Here's Dave. When we went down to the make arrangements for Brittany, we were sitting there, and... and Everybody was civil, and Mary, one of these little porcelain angels, put on the corner of her headstone, or casket, casket. I mean, and she said, I'd like to have an extra one. Of course, Shane wanted one then, and you could see the aggravation in him sitting there, and Mary tried to say, hey, Shane, is there anything special you want to do, you know, anything and he looked at me, and he looked at Mary, and he looked at the funeral director, and he goes, you know what, y'all had her a lot longer than I did, do whatever you want. He got up and walked out of the room. And left us. Left yeah. us to do everything, sign for everything, the whole nine yards. Dave says they proceeded with the funeral, and thankfully everything was civil and normal for the most part. And then shortly after the funeral, Dave learned there was $14,000 owed. He immediately reached out to Shane in regards to covering some of the costs. According to Dave, the call didn't go well. It was brief, and no agreement was made. So Dave went ahead and reached out to the funeral home to discuss how he and Mary could pay what was owed. to pay the funeral home, and they just kept putting it off and said, no, no, just hold off, hold off, hold off. We held off for a year before we were paid for the funeral. I get a call from the detective, and he said, hey, they're going to release that victims of violent crime money to Shane. To clarify, about two weeks after the murder, Shane filed a claim with the Ohio Victims of Crime Compensation Program. It's financial assistance for victims of a violent crime. They help cover certain out-of-pocket expenses. And Shane was granted assistance to the tune of $50,000. $7,500 of it went to the funeral home to cover half the costs. And that's the only deduction listed in the signed award summary. Then the next thing you know, I get a call from him and he says, hey, how do you spell Brittany's name? And I'm going, 
What do you mean, how do you spell her name? He was making arrangements to purchase a headstone. And I said, well, what are you going to do with your headstone once you order it? He says, what do you mean? I said, well, you do understand there's a deed to that lot where she's buried. He said, yeah. And I said, well, with the deed, you can't put something on in somebody else's property. And I own that piece of property. And that caused some really, really hard feelings. And I said, Shane, it's real simple. You wasn't willing to pay for the funeral. Help me pay on the funeral. So you're not going to do for the headstone. And uh, that, have her exhumed. Yeah, he said, well, I'll have her exhumed. And I said, well, I promise you, you'll never make the court hearing. I'm happy to tell you Brittany was never exhumed. She's buried right where the Dodsons intended, in a lot they owned at Mount Zion Cemetery. When we spoke with Shane about all this, I was kind of surprised that he didn't really have much to say. It seems he's moved on from it, though he still doesn't understand what he did to warrant the hard feelings towards him. He's sort of downcast about the way things have gone with the Dodsons. He remembers how things used to be. At one point, he felt he'd become a part of their family. You know, they were a close family. All, all the siblings and, and the parents were together all the time and, and got along and got, had get-togethers, and it was great. It was nice to be all settled in and accepted. I thought we still were, even a- after this happened, you know. Like, at the hospital, I thought everything was cool. And, like, I had to leave the hospital to go talk to the cops a couple of times and when I did that I would always stop down the Dotsons and whatnot, you know and then I could just tell the vibe was changing you know I'm like man they think they think I did this you know they were trying to take custody of her and I'm like what are you just gonna take everything I don't even get my child you know it just none of it it was so crazy to me. The custody battle was another thing the parties couldn't see eye to eye on. We're not even going to get into all that. But what I will say is the Dodsons wanted full custody, and eventually they settled on shared custody. Dave and Mary get Aubrey every other weekend, some holidays, and four weeks in the summer. Shane has her the rest of the time. But sifting through the aftermath, there was one thing that both parties could agree on related to the Brown County Sheriff's Office investigation into Brittany's murder. When we met with Shane, he spoke in detail about how the early parts of the investigation left a lot to be desired. It was so disorganized and ridiculous. The people that they had on this case, it was like Barney Fife or something. It was terrible. You know, you had the one guy that's like trying to be my buddy and he's cool and... And then you got his partner who's, he's, he's the rough and tough guy that's going to, you know, intimidate me, you know. And it was just so pathetic, really. <laughs> it was. They never investigated any single person that I knew on a personal level. They were talking to people that I, I had met like twice and asking their opinion. So that didn't make no sense either is the crap that they had on this case from the get-go and that's the most critical hours tell me this where have you ever seen a crime scene where they shut the highway down and sweep for shell casings a week later how's that happen do you see this crap on tv you know you take it for granted and then you wake up one day and, and you're and you're that 
with no warning, no no reasoning. You know, I ain't never done nothing that's gonna get my family killed for Christ's sake. I'm not a criminal, you know? And I don't know that she's ever done anything in her life to, you know? So that's why it made none of it makes any sense. Shane says there's a lot of things that will never make sense to him. Obviously, the way he's been investigated and treated throughout this is one of them. But when we spoke, it had been about nine years since Brittany's death. I asked him what's changed in that time. It's just now calm. Just now. There's finally, you know, a couple of officers that are qualified, I think, to be on that job. Before, it was not that situation, you know. Because the other guys always had me as a suspect. And it was so frustrating to deal with that. You know who you are. You know what's real and what's not. You know how many times I've heard the statistic of nine times out of ten, it's the husband. You know, something like, I mean, God. I get it. I get it. But this is not the case here, so. That's what I wish that my wife's mother understood. It's like, look, I went through a full-blown murder investigation unrepresented. Come on. If I was the slightest bit connected with anything, they would have done had me in there nine years ago. You know what I'm saying? So I just wish that she would just come to terms with the simple fact and get over it because it would be for my daughter's sake. To be fair, the Dodsons and Shane both make it very clear that everything they do is for Aubrey. They owe it to her. And beyond that, they owe it to Brittany. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. 
When we met with Shane at his home, he actually afforded us the opportunity to sit down and talk with Aubrey. And that was crucial because her story matters so much. If we're going to talk about how the loss of Brittany has affected everyone, we can't leave out her daughter. I'm Aubrey Stikes, and I'm 10 years old, turned 10 in June. So what grade are you in? Uh, I'm in fifth this year. Aubrey has grown up quite a bit since we met at the Dodson's house about a year ago. We notice a big piece of art hanging on the wall beside us. Aubrey made it. It includes her dream home, a stable, a guitar center, and a car shop. Oh, and puppies, too. Seems she has big aspirations. So what do you want to do when you grow up? Uh, this is probably stupid, but I've always had this dream to start my own company where I raise farm animals, like horses and pigs and herding dogs and stuff like that. And what are the animals going to be raised for, do you think? Uh showing just for like small farms that are trying to get going or like starter farm yeah that's probably a good idea yeah and you know where math comes in handy she's had the idea for as long as she can remember between her dad and the dodson's house she's always been around animals always had a love for them is this your cat it's the family cat yeah, more it's like just a, just a straggler the straggler does have a name though I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. What is it? Pierre. <laughs> Why is it named that? Um, I can't remember who named it, but it's because every time we used to let her outside, she would just do it randomly. She would stop, stare at us, and then she would take off. So. And, and go. Pierre. <laughs> there you go. We spend a little more time talking about her future plans and what it will look like raising all those farm animals one day. And then... Staying on that topic, sort of. Jessica gives an analogy. Do you know what the elephant in the room is? Have you ever heard that expression? Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to bring up the elephant in the room. Do you feel like a miracle? Kind of. Sometimes. How so? Like, sometimes I'll, like, I'll just sit down and I'll just think through it all and I'll be like, it's crazy how I'm still here. Like, it's crazy how that happened, because... The fact she believes in miracles isn't really a shock. I mean, you know her story now. But her beliefs go well beyond that. We get a little deeper. Do you believe there's a heaven? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a thousand percent sure this is in the Bible, but I think a good saying is that your goal should not be heaven, it should be a, to make a new heaven, and that is on earth. So. Right on. Whoa. And she does that for me. She really does. She gives me uh, a lot of good vibes in life. So, if mom's up in heaven, what would you want her to know? That I'm glad that she's in a better place, and I miss her, and I love her, and I would really like to see her. That'd be cool, right? Don't look at me. <laughs> Sorry. I don't want to cry for you. He knows every time he cries, I cry, so. Yep. It happens a lot. She is so good at the elephant in the room. 
she knows all about the elephant in the room and she is a master at it that's for sure she knows when something's off and something's needs addressed and and she goes right to it and so i thank her for that but as poised and mature as this 10 year old problem solver may be she's not one to act like all of her problems are solved i don't know it's just like when i've had a stepmom it just feels like there's something there but it's not like as i feel like it doesn't quite fill the hole that a real mother would that's all I wanted for all of them. And I had it with her mother, and I have not been able to replace that. Yeah, it feels like, like if I had like a puzzle of like, say my puzzle is the family, there's just that one piece right up there in the corner that's missing. Aubrey places her hand on her dad's back. You're upset. I'm fine. You're upset. Yeah, I am, but, you know, it's hard for me to listen to you all, deal with it your way, and then deal with me on top of that, you know? I got two kids that ain't got a mom, but they do got a dad, so there's my job, okay? I know why I'm here, and the rest of anybody else's petty shit... I don't care. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be insensitive, but I got a job to do. I'm going to do it. Shane says he'll stick to his job and let the Brown County Sheriff's Office do their job. He thinks Brittany's case is in good hands now, and that's put him at ease. Remember, Brittany's case is still open, and so much has happened through the years of investigating. This case has gone through numerous detectives, and the BCI even had their own investigation. Unfortunately, we didn't have any luck talking with the former detectives, and we've been denied access to all the files from the BCI's investigation. And that has led us here, to the Brown County Sheriff's Office, to speak with their captain, who, having been on the force for many years now, has spent countless hours working on Brittany's case. My name is Chad Noble. I'm the captain out at the Brown County Sheriff's Office here in Brown County, Ohio. Been working on the on and off on the Brittany Sykes homicide investigation for upwards of seven years now. At times, being the lead investigator to just assisting along the way. I assist Sergeant Carlson, who is now the lead on the case, uh, with whatever he needs, whatever information, whatever help he needs in anything, um, I'll assist. Back in 2013, Captain Noble was working as a road unit. He'd heard about Brittany's case, just as everyone in the town had. But he wasn't investigating it at the time, as he wasn't yet a detective. He became a detective shortly after Brittany's murder. And then, not long after that, he became the supervisor of investigations. And that's when he was assigned the case. Such a unbelievable crime that doesn't happen in this county. I mean, here was a pregnant woman. Everybody's like, oh... She probably was into something that, you know, nobody knew about. (laughs) No, I've looked at every angle. This was a completely innocent woman that was traveling on a roadway here in Brown County, and somebody ended her life and that of her child that she was pregnant with and injured her other child. I mean, one of the most horrendous crimes I've ever heard of in my entire life. And it happened right here in our county. I can't believe still to this day, almost nine years later, that it actually still happened, you know. 
Like Captain Noble said, over the years he's had the opportunity to look at this from just about every angle. And of course one of the first angles was looking into Shane and the idea that he could be involved in some way. When I came onto this case, I had reached out and made contact with Shane and I knew that he had been investigated as a uh, person of interest, you know, like anybody would, any married person would be. I looked at all the information to cover my ground. I investigated him. There are certain things that I asked of him. At no point in time did he ever not do what I asked him to do. I checked out everything that I had on him, every question that I ever asked, he answered. Anytime I've wanted something in this case from him, he has delivered. He has never withheld anything that, uh, that I've ever seen or heard. He has done everything I've asked him to do in this case, and I've asked him to do some pretty hard things. That is the process of going through people of interest in this case. I'm not going to tell you who I have marked off and who I haven't, but I will say that I investigated him, and he's never failed to deliver on anything I've asked of him. Something important to note about Shane is that while he's continually been looked at over the years, he's technically been cleared as a person of interest, at least to the media. And that wasn't a recent announcement. He was cleared just weeks after the murder through a statement made by Sheriff Dwayne Winninger, who said, quote, two persons of interest have alibis and have been interviewed by deputies and a person trained to do scientific interviews. Daryl Shane Stikes and another individual interviewed have no involvement in the offense. The investigation continues and additional persons of interest are being interviewed. Now, I don't know who that other individual is, but there were other persons of interest, which we'll get into, so it's possible it could be one of them. All that to say, it made me wonder, if the Brown County Sheriff's Office doesn't know who did it, do they have any idea why it happened? We've looked at every possible avenue. Was she the intended victim? Was somebody mad at her? Was somebody jealous of her? You know, I mean, there are a million different avenues that you could go down. Was it a random act? Did she pull out in front of somebody? Did she cut somebody off? The options will drive you crazy. You got to stay focused when you get on a certain avenue and run it all the way down. Sometimes you got to explain to people, Criminal Minds, the TV show is a TV show. They catch a serial killer every week on their show, you know. A lot of things don't happen that way, you know, and and in the real world, it will take evidence. It will take everything we need that once we file that indictment on somebody, they're not getting out of it. That's why every avenue, every possible stone is being overturned, because when the day does come that, you know, somebody does get handcuffed and come to jail, they're not leaving. They're not leaving. With so much left unanswered, Noble says getting a conviction in this case will require evidence but you have to imagine they've had some evidence to work with in this case. So we asked him. He wasn't able to tell us much. There's evidence that we got from the scene. That's concrete evidence that never changes. Then there's evidence that come from people, community leaders, witnesses will give us things. That changes. And when I say evidence, I always use the word evidence because if you give me a statement that turns out to be true, it is evidence. And eventually somebody's going to make that statement that is told in court, that is told in a trial, that puts this murderer behind bars for the rest of their lives or even more. The evidence has led me in so many different directions. It's led me to prisons. It's led me to different states. It's led me to mountaintops. It's led me to valleys. It's led me everywhere. Wherever it leads, I'll go. 
Noble says that Brittany is at the center of everything they do, not just in terms of why they've poured endless resources into this case, more than any other case they've handled, but also in the way they've conducted their investigation. It starts with Brittany, and it branches out from there. It's been a very thorough process of spider webbing out from her into her life to try and figure out why, you know who, we know when, we know how, and getting the who and the why is where we've been struggling for these years. Obviously, if I have talked to the murderer, he or she did not tell me what I needed to hear at that time to put them behind bars. And I'm sure we'll have another conversation one day. I look forward to that. But I do, I believe there's people out there that know without a shadow of a doubt, we just need that person to, to step up. And I don't blame people for being scared. I would never be upset if somebody came forward now after all these years. The person that knows what happened and comes forward, they're the hero here. Captain Noble is optimistic that someone will step up and be that hero. Sometimes it just takes that one person. And while they've had numerous people come forward with new leads and information over the years, it obviously hasn't been enough to put this case to rest. But when we spoke with Brittany's husband, Shane, he informed us that the Brown County Sheriff's Office has been given both a person and a motive. Now, where that information led them, and whether or not there's validity to the claims, we don't know. But we hope to find out. If not from the Brown County Sheriff's Office, then from Shane himself. Because he's the one who gave the Sheriff's Office this information. He believes he's onto something, and has been from the very beginning. Well, I have my ideas, yeah. And the police are all aware of that. They were aware of that the second day. They were aware of the story and scenario that I have come up with. It's just that I don't want to be a hypocrite. Honestly, even if I did accuse the wrong person, it wouldn't make him any less of a piece of shit anyway. So it doesn't even matter. But I think how it happened is I think that they drove around her to the left to pass, fired the shots, however many, into the vehicle. And I think my wife then veered off the road because she had been shot three times. So you don't believe this is random? No, I do not. No, absolutely not. I believe it was intentional, and I believe it was a message. Who was the message for? I believe it was for me. This is the only scenario I could ever possibly think of. Culpable is a production of Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13, written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper, and produced by Jessica Knoll. Executive producers are myself, Mark Mennery, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Our senior producer is John Street. Additional production by Todd McComas. Editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Dayton Cole, Pat Kicklighter, Adam Townsell, and Caleb Melcher of the Resonate Recordings team. 
If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor Robbins, with additional scoring by Dayton Cole. Our cover art is by Drew Bardana. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcasts. Show notes, as well as bonus content, can be found on our website, culpablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And lastly, if you have any information about the murder of Brittany Stikes, we urge you to contact the Brown County Sheriff's Office by visiting their website, browncountyohiosheriff.us, where you can anonymously submit your information. Or you can contact Sergeant Quinn Carlson directly at 937-378-4435, extension 126, or by email at quincarlson at bcoso.com. You can also submit your information through our website, culpablepodcast.com. Thank you for listening.